21st of April 2021 at exactly 900 hours we will be doing SOS 511 location unknown gentlemen gentlemen this is your captain speaking my name is Colonel Babaji the Mubarak and I'll be with you on this long journey Firstly, let us start with essential element. Kabish, I'd like to call out some of my generals, like General Big Toe, Goredi, and many other people because <laughs> I got a lot of men in my division. Okay, enough of the play. Let us start by essential elements. So, what are essential elements? Essential elements are the elements needed by plants for growth and reproduction. And without these essential elements, plants cannot complete their life cycle. And <clears throat> the function of these elements cannot be replaced by another one. So the element is directly involved in plant growth and development. We have about 16 essential elements. We have carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium, sulfur, boron, chlorine, copper, eplantisha. But the thing is that some are non-mineral, like carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, while the rest are mineral. Then some are primary elements like nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, while some are non-primary. Then we have the um what's it called? We have the can I use the word macro? Yeah, we have the macronutrients, the MPK, calcium, sulfur, magnesium, and we also have the ones that are like the trace, the micro nutrients like the copper, boron, chlorine, iron, um, nickel, cobalt, zinc, manganese and many more like that. So all of these have their own sources. Carbon is usually gotten from the air and hydrogen is gotten from water. Oxygen can be gotten from both air and water. Nitrogen is principally gotten from the air because it's when it has been fixed into the soil, that's when it can be available in mineral form to plant. You get phosphorus from apatite, you get potassium from muscovite, you get calcium from biotite, you get magnesium from serpentine, you get sulfur by wedging of metal sulfide, you get boron from shale, you get chlorine from salt, that has been trapped inside the parent's material when wedging. You get copper from copric, um, copric or ferrite or some carbonates. Then you get iron from wedging of non-minerals like olivine, magnetite. You get manganese from wedging of iron and magnesium rocks. You get zinc also from shale, limestone. You get molybdenum from lead molybdate or you get nickel from pyrite you get cobalt but all of these things have been mentioned in the sources you should just know about maybe primary two two to three of the micro you can know about two to three of or more than three of the macro then you should know the non-mineral element as well so why do we call these macronutrients? It's because they are large, they are needed in large quantity, and the micronutrients are needed in minute quantity. The macronutrients can be classified based on deficiency, and because their deficiency are common, the secondary nutrients like calcium, magnesium, and sulfur. They can also be classified under deficiency, but rather their deficiency are less common. Um, well, the available forms, because they used to say 
even with these 16 elements present, if they are not in the available form and it's not available to plant, it's as good as useless. And <clears throat> it is it is the available form that plants can take up for use and we need to know each available form of at least about 10 elements but we don't know which elements you might be asked so it's advisable you know all carbon is gotten from co2 that's easy hydrogen is gotten from water that's easy h2o oxygen is gotten from o2 nitrogen is oh sorry sorry the available forms that I was talking about not sources carbon is available to plant in co2 hydrogen is available from is water oxygen available form is o2 nitrogen available form is no3 minus and nh4 plus phosphorus available form is h2o po4 h2po4 minus and hpo4 2 minus then potassium, K plus, sulfur, SO4 2 minus, calcium, CA2 plus, magnesium, Mg2 plus, iron, Fe2 plus or Fe3 plus, manganese, Mn2 plus. Then boron can be available in BO3 minus or H3BO3 minus. You can also have zinc in Zn2 plus, copper in Cu2 plus. Molybdenum in molybdenum, that's MO, then big O4, 2 minus, chlorine, Cl minus. Ah, uh, this stuff is bullshit, man. So, we have the history of this element, and I don't think anybody's ready to ask us the history. Ah, uh, if they ask us, if they ask us, so let's. In the next segment, we'll talk about deficiency of these symptoms, the deficiency symptoms rather of these nutrients. Stay with us. All right, so we'll be looking at deficiency symptoms of these elements, and the first one we'll be looking at is chlorosis. And chlorosis is a nutrient deficiency conditions that makes leaves turn green to yellow like from the green color that we usually know it turns yellow or even a lighter shade of that green we also have necrosis which is a nutrient deficiency condition that makes leaves turn from green to brown or the dying of plant tissues so the twin brother or aburochlorosis, the intervenial chlorosis, is a deficiency symptom that shows chlorosis between the leaf veins. And <clears throat> some terminology used to describe this is the meristem, which is the growing point of a plant, the internode, which is the distance of the stem between the leaves. Now, some of these elements are mobile and some are not mobile or non-mobile element and a mobile element is the one that is able to translocate or move from one part of the plant to another depending on its need and mobile elements usually move from older plants which is the plants that are lower like the leaves that are lower to the new plant site the meristem which is the growing point of a plant or the most active growth so let's look about the let's look at the physiological roles, uh, deficiency symptoms, and mobility of this element. So nitrogen is mobile, and its deficiency is chlorosis. And how do you note that? You see stunted, this the slow they start growing slowly, and the physiological role that nitrogen play is photosynthesis, protein formation. Um, well, I don't think I can be giving you all of this in a note, but it also improves quality and quantity of dry matter in leafy vegetables. Phosphorus is as well a mobile element, and it also shows chlorosis as well because. <clears throat> 
it is it plays a very vital role in photosynthesis respiration energy storage you know it plays a role of rna and dna genetic information it also plays a role in the root development and flower initiation so the deficiencies are stunted growth poor developed root system purple or reddish coloration of leaves so when they tell you purple or reddish coloration you know what is deficient you find it more common in maize potassium too is also mobile and it also shows chlorosis mpk our method they are showing chlorosis so that's the downside of um, deficiency symptoms they show chlorosis along leaf margins they um, they poor they have poor developed root system when um, potassium is deficient and it doesn't give plants the resistance to disease when there's no potassium your plant cannot be resistant to disease so the physiological role is that potassium is an enzyme activator it regulates plant use of water by controlling the opening and closing of the stomatas it also has a role in photosynthesis and it promotes translocation of sugar for plant growth so you can see that these three elements all play big roles in photosynthesis they are the three of them are mobile the primary nutrients in this matter and the three of them show chlorosis first so what about calcium calcium is not mobile and from the upper leaves and the growing point, that's the meristem, that's where they show their own deficiency. Poor root growth as well. They often turn black and rot. Failure of terminal buds and shoots. Ah, this thing is quite difficult to understand if you are not following with deep mind. The physiological role of calcium is cell wall membrane and its plasticity. Formation. It also serves as a detoxifying agent. Calcium also reduces soil acidity, you know, from liming. Um, magnesium, on the other hand, down is mobile and the lower leaves show deficiency first. Calcium, the upper leaves show first. Magnesium, the lower leaves show first. And deficiency symptoms is intravenous chlorosis. And the major constituent of chlorophyll molecule is magnesium, so you don't want it to be deficient. And the chlorophyll, you know, has to do with photosynthesis. It's also uh, concerned with the structural component of ribosomes. What about sulfur? Sulfur can't be really told if it is mobile or not mobile, or it is required for the synthesis of sulfur containing amino acids and it also promotes the nodulation of end fixation by legumes and the deficiency symptom of this is chlorosis as well because sulfur deficiency resembles that of end deficiency which can lead to incorrect diagnosis boron is not mobile <clears throat> but it is essential for germination of pollen grains as the upper leaves, when I say upper leaves, I mean the younger leaves, they show the symptoms first. And the symptoms of boron are the formation of the new leaves, intervening chlorosis, reduced leaf size, and it's related to flower or fruit abortion. Then copper, which is a catalyst to several enzymes and chlorophyll formation is also not mobile and shows in the upper leaf and the deficiency is reduced leaf sizes and leaf may lack what we call togor and may develop bluish green cast bluish green is relating to copper iron is not mobile and it shows intervenial chlorosis serves as catalyst involved in many oxidation reduction uh, reaction and it's also a concern in photosynthesis 
So if you don't know anything, just be writing that they are concerned in photosynthesis. Except zinc sure. So manganese too shows intervenient chlorosis. Iron deficiency shows intervenient chlorosis. And iron, manganese, and zinc are not mobile. Zinc is necessary for protein and RNA synthesis and it leads to shortening of the internodes where it shows intervenial chlorosis. Molybdenum is not mobile within plants and <clears throat> it shows intervenial chlorosis as well. It's required for the synthesis and activity of nitrate reductase. We'll be needing some of these physiological roles. We don't know which one. Then chlorine is involved in the energy reaction in plants, breakdown of water regulation. Um, so chlorine also shows chlorosis in upper upper leaves. Cobalt is used by symbiotic uh, and fixing bacteria. Nickel is mobile. And nickel is after the nitrogen metabolism. Then the physiological roles of cobalt is also symbiotic and fixation by rhizobial bacteria. And the deficiency of cobalt is chlorotic leaves and stunted plants. Nickel too may include chlorosis and necrosis in young leaves and failure to produce viable seeds. Ah, so that's the end of that. See you in the next segment. Well, this part is not something people can tend to remember so easily. So I'll just pick few. The average concentration of elements in shoot dry matter required for plant adequate growth in carbon concentration in dry tissue i mean for carbon the concentration in dry tissue is 45 percent same with oxygen 45 percent and hydrogen is six percent then nitrogen has 1.5 phosphorus has 0.1 to 0.5 potassium has 0.5 to 0.8 so that's the only um, ones that will be looking at they have various concentration in soil as well but i think they are bigger and better and bigger questions to be asked so let's talk about the forms and availability then i just only listed them but now i'm going to explain nitrogen is present in the soil as a gas n2 but it is not usually available at, as n2 so it needed to be is needed to be converted to no3 minus and NH4 plus because that's the only um, form that plants can make use of it. It can also be present in soil as NO2 or NH3, but plants is only interested in NO3 minus and NH4 plus. So the conversion is carried out by various microorganisms like bacteria and fungi. Then chemical reaction in the soil also causes conversion. Phosphorus, on the other hand, can exist in different chemical forms like H3PO4 minus, H2PO4 minus, HPO42 minus, and PO43 minus. But the availability available form is H2PO4 minus and HPO4 minus. Under acid condition, H2PO4 minus is there. Under neutral condition, you can have HPO42 minus and H2PO4 minus in the same proportion. And when it is alkaline, you can have HPO42 minus. So, under extreme acid or alkaline condition, plant tends to suffer phosphorus deficiency because the P is ready not available. Then, the plant availability of phosphorus is generally between a pH range of 5.5 to 6.8 and when pH fall below 5.5, P reacts with Fe and aluminium to produce insoluble Fe and aluminium phosphates that are not readily taken up by plant or that are not readily available for plant uptake. 
and at high pH level, she reacts with calcium to form calcium phosphate. That is also of low availability to plant. Potassium, on the other hand, has about four availability categories. The solution potassium, exchangeable K, non-exchangeable K, and unavailable K. And the unavailable K constitutes of 90 to 98% of the soil total K. And they are classified as unavailable K. The non-exchangeable K is a form of K that is held or trapped between layers of clay mineral and is released only slowly so it's slowly available to plant and the exchangeable K is the form that occupies the exchange site and this one is readily exchanged and it is readily available to plant the solution potassium the last but not the least is the water soluble form and this is immediately available to plant but since it's in solution it is susceptible to leaching Calcium is present in the soil as Ca2+, that's the availability, and magnesium is Mg2+. Potassium, calcium, and magnesium are most present in soil with pH greater than 6.0, and they are generally not as available for plant uptake in acidic soils, and they may have been partially leached out of the soil profile. We have two forms that sulfur exist, or yeah that are available we have the so 42 and the elemental sulfur the sulfate sulfur is readily available that's the so 42 and the elemental sulfur must be converted to sulfate before it is readily available the rate of co- conversion of elemental sulfur to sulfate sulfur depends on the type of sulfur the particle size soil temperature soil moisture and the population level of oxidizing bacteria Micronutrients in general are more available in acid than alkaline soil. So as pH increases, micronutrient availability decreases. And the potential for the deficiency also increases. So an exception to this trend actually is the molybdenum because it becomes less available as pH of the soil decreases. Also, boron becomes less available when the pH is less than 5. But they'll just be picking some little little point and asking to explain. There's what we call aluminium, iron, and manganese toxicity at a pH level less than 5. All these three elements may be soluble in sufficient quantity and toxic to the growth of some plants. Aluminium toxicity limits plant growth in strongly acid soils. Because of the hydrolysis of aluminium and high concentration of exchangeable aluminium are toxic and detrimental to plants. So we'll be moving to fertilizers in the next segment. Cassia. So we'll be talking about fertilizers in this segment and fertilizer is any material, be it organic or inorganic, natural or synthetic, that furnishes to plant one or more of the elements essential for normal growth and yield. Types of fertilizer, it could be inorganic or chemical fertilizer. These are simple chemical compounds made in factories or organic fertilizer which composes of wastes and residue from plants and animals. Classification of organic fertilizer. We have the industrial organic fertilizer which includes waste from brewery, molasses, waste from tobacco company, juice and meat canning industry, bone, hooves, blood, the blue meal, blood meal, those are industrial organic fertilizers. And we have the non-industrial organic fertilizer. This includes the cocoa pods, rice husk or rice brands, bean pod, town refuse, city waste, animal and human feces. Those are non-industrial. So the difference between this organic and inorganic fertilizer is that 
The inorganic fertilizer consists of relatively simple chemical compound of a known composition. And to be honest, they are nutritionally more concentrated and they release their nutrients immediately they have been applied to the soil. But organic fertilizer are slowly mineralized, adding organic matter to the soil because they are rich in water and carbon compound. So let's look into common fertilizer terms. Uh, that's fertilizer grade. And this is a nutrient grade that is usually expressed in weight percentages of either N or P2O5 and K2O. N is always nitrogen. N is usually expressed as N. But P and K are usually ex um, expressed in weight form. And we have what we call the straight fertilizer, which is a fertilizer that furnishes only one primary nutrient element. Like urea supplies only nitrogen, ammonium nitrate also supplies only nitrogen. Then <clears throat> we have compound fertilizers. This one furnishes about two or more nutrients, like potassium nitrate gives potassium and nitrogen. We have granular fertilizer, and these are fertilizers that are in form of particle sized between an upper and lower limit or between two screen size, which means they have been sieved like two uh, upper limit and a lower limit. So the fineness and the stonage, we can have fine fertilizer, fine particles. Yes, so that's the, the fine one is the non-granular fertilizer this one contains fine particles usually with some upper limits such as 3 mm but no lower limits so <clears throat> we have what we call the fillers and these materials may possess or not possess any manorial value to compound fertilizers <clears throat> to make up the weight required to get them to conform to a predetermined specification in terms of percentages of the active ingredients. So we use sand, soil, ground, coal, ashes, and other waste products as fillers. And we also have carriers. Any material that carries one or more of the fertilizer elements, like ammonium sulfate, is a carrier supplying nitrogen. So we also have coated fertilizer. This is a granular fertilizer that is coated with a thin layer of some substances like clay just to prevent caking or control dissolution rate, the rate at which it dissolves. Then we have the liquid or fluid fertilizer. This term is used for wholly or partially um, fertilizers that are in solution and can be handled as liquid. We have balanced Fertilizer. These are fertilizers that are in correct ratios to meet the demands or the needs of crop and correct efficiency. So we have nitrogenous, phosphatic, and potash fertilizers. And we know nitrogenous fertilizers like urea, ammonium sulfate, or phosphatic fertilizers like superphosphate, or potash like the muriate of potash, or the potassium sulfate. So, all of these um, uh, fertilizers supply a major nutrient. Not that they don't supply some other elements, but the one that is supplied the most is <coughs> the, the, the base nutrient we are looking for. And I'll just talk about some, like ammonium sulfate supplies about 26% nitrogen. Urea supply about 46%. The single superphosphate supplies about 12 to 15% of phosphorus, and the triple superphosphate supplies about 20% um, phosphorus. Then the potassium, the muriate of potassium supplies about 50% K, and potassium sulfate supplies about 42% K. And well, there are some conversion because some fertilizers are given in the oxide form that's majorly for p and k so 
when you are converting from P to the oxide form, you multiply by 2.29. And when you are converting from the oxide form to P, you use 0. times 0.44. When you are converting from K to K2O, you use times 1.2. And when you are converting from K2O to K, you use times 0. 0.3. So, catch you on the next segment on fertilizer rates. Alright, so we'll be looking at fertilizer rate and fertilizer rate is the quantity of fertilizer that should be applied per unit area of the farm. And to calculate the quantity of different um, fertilizers that is needed to supply different nutrients, there are some mathematical calculations that you need to uh, put in place and well, I don't know how I can do that on on this podcast, and which is the short um, coming of the shortcoming of podcast. So we would move straight into method of fertilizer application, and you can apply fertilizer by broadcasting, and you can only use this for dry fertilizer where you spread on the surface of the land. You can leave it there, or you incorporate it into the soil the advantage is that it's an easy and simple method no costly um, equipment is required and is most suitable for applying large quantity then the disadvantages is that it also encourages weed growth and some of the nutrients like p and k are largely fixed in high fixing soil because their contact with soil increases Hence, little of them is absorbed by plant, and it is inefficient to enhance plants uptake of nutrients. We have the foliar application. This is by spraying the foliage of the plant, and the nutrients um, in the fertilizer solution enters the plant through the stomata or the epidermis. And this point, this type of application promotes rapid plant absorption of nutrients. And only small uh, amount of nutrient can be applied because large amount cannot. It is mostly important for micronutrient application because they are needed in small amount. And if the concentration of your fertilizer solution is high, it can cause what we call sunburn. Foliar application is helpful when adverse conditions such as root rot, disease, nematode attack, drought, High fixation of P and K that restrict plant uptake to prevail in the soil. We also have band placements. This is putting up fertilizer in strips or band. Because fertilizer can be placed in band at a depth of 14 to 18 cm. And this is type deep banding or subsurface banding. And fertilizer may also be applied below the seed or to the side of the seed. Uh, like we did in FPY, I think that's band placement. Then it is most effective in dryland cultivation and it is effective in high P fixing soil because the band placement reduces the contact of fertilizer with the soil, hence, reduces that. So, top dressing this is the application of fertilizer to standing crops. Fertilizer may be broadcasted or fatigated. Facts to be considered that for nitrogen, top dressing is effective, but top dressing of P and K is not as effective as that of N, and basal application of P and K is more effective. So, when urea is applied on the surface of an alkaline or calcareous soil, ammonia may volatilize. We also have injection application where liquid fertilizer are injected at certain depth of the soil. And it is a deep placement of fertilizer because the soil has to be well tilled and moist. We have spot placement. These are where fertilizers are put in holes between two, each of two plants. The holes are made with peg and fertilizer applied in scoop. What is fertigation? Fertigation is simply the application of fertilizers along with irrigation. 
and nitrogen can efficiently be applied through fatigation, usually anhydrous and aqua NH3. The advantage is that fertilizer can be applied as when plants need it and it is most effective in coarse textured soil because sandy soil is low in organic matter. Because of this, it does not involve the leaching loss of N. But the disadvantage is that NH3 in irrigation water may volatilize, causing N loss. And if irrigation water contains large amounts of calcium and Mg2+, both um, phosphorus precipitates in form of calcium phosphate or magnesium phosphate. Sorry, sorry for the breach in um, transmission, transition, transition. So, <clears throat> well, the chemical formula of some some fertilizers, well. And ammonium sulfates like NH42, SO4. This one's. So, what are the nutrient uptake processes? Is it that it takes it up by root interception? This is where plant roots grows to touch nutrients where they are, or mass flow, the movement of nutrients along with water moving towards the root surface for absorption, or diffusion, which is the movement of ions from high concentration to low concentration and the quantity of nutrients absorbed by plant through through root interception depends on the soil volume occupied by the roots the concentration of the root i mean of the nutrient and the roots morphology the relatively quantity of particular nutrient delivered by mass flow or diffusion depend on the nutrients and soil property. Nutrients with high concentration will be supplied largely by mass flow and the ones with low concentration such as phosphorus will be mainly supplied by diffusion. And <clears throat> fertilizer and the way you handle them and storage. Let's do that in the next segment. Um, the handling and storage of <clears throat> fertilizers. Fertilizers should be stored in a closed, secure storage. Um, you have to protect them from the sun, rain, and theft. And when you are building a storage for fertilizer, all buildings for fertilizer storage should have adequate provision for ventilation so as to dissipate heat and discharge fumes in a fire or decomposition. The floor should have a level, dry, and even surface. The limit of the height of fertilizer stacks should be limited as well. So you have to store fertilizer at least one meter away from beams and walls and do not store bulk material when they are incompatible, like storing urea near ammonium nitrate. Now you know within you define. But then you keep lime and fertilizers well separated so as not to react together. You keep fertilizers away from any flammable material at least 5 meters away because most nitrogen fertilizers contain nitrates which decomposes when heated, developing a toxic nitrogen oxide already at 150 degrees Celsius. So you have to protect your body too when you are handling fertilizers and do not lift or handle excess fertilizer weight to avoid injury. And for the chemical formula of nitrogen fertilizer, NH4 is present in them. And ammonium, NH4 is obtained from ammonia. And the main industrial procedure for the production of ammonia is the Arbor-Bosch process. Fritz Heber, Atikao Bosch, and Mijiji law invents Biashiman produce ammonia. And the procedure was used by Germany during World War I as a source of ammonia to produce explosives. The procedure converts atmospheric nitrogen, N2, to ammonia by a reaction with hydrogen. So N2 plus 3H2 plus will give you ammonia under high temperature and using a metal as catalyst. 
So the you can be asked to define the Ababosh process of ammonia synthesis. A mixture of nitrogen and hydrogen in the ratio of 1 to 3 by volume is compressed under high pressure, about 200 to 180 m, and the compressed mixture is passed through chamber filled with mixture of catalysts, those metals, the ion of metals, the ion oxide, and a promoter of molybdenum, aluminium, CaO, or potassium. The mixture is then heated to about 400 to 500 degrees Celsius and nitrogen reacts with this hydrogen to yield ammonia. <clears throat> Another theory now on how you get nitrogen and how you get hydrogen. Kajuko? So after you do, you've done your ammonia, ammonium is separated by liquefaction. So how can you get nitrogen? And get nitrogen from the air, you can get that is when you pass hair through fused calcium chloride and slick lime in order to free it from water vapor and carbon dioxide. The air is then liquefied by repeatedly compressing it, allowing it to expand. The liquid air is a mixture of liquid nitrogen and oxygen. Nitrogen is obtained by fractional distillation. Hydrogen, on the other hand, is manufactured by maybe hydrocarbons, natural gas, naphtha, or liquefied petroleum gas. You can get it from water, you can get it from water gas, you can get it from coke oven gas, you can get it from refinery. So if you want to manufacture hydrogen from natural gas, you can get it from oil wells or decomposition of organic matter. Natural gas secured from oil are used to manufacture hydrogen as this gas is a mixture of several gases hydrocarbon, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, H2S, N, and H. So, on the composition of this hydrocarbon, they release hydrogen. So, what do you need for the manufacture of urea? You already have hydrogen, you have nitrogen, you have ammonia. Then, urea now. So urea is a manufactured uh, fertilizer by reacting pure ammonia with carbon dioxide under high temperature and pressure. And this will give you ammonium carbonate. Then ammonium carbonate is further dehydrated into urea. In this reaction, ammonia and CO2 are unchanged. Even ammonium, so, um, ammonium carbonate too is left unchanged. So ammonium reacts with carbon dioxide to form ammonium carbonate, and it is dehydrated to yield urea and water. So these all gases, the ammonium carbonate, are next separated, recovered, and recycled by a horn through a total recycle or partial process. Um, well, you can solidify urea by crystallization or prilling, and crystallization is the urea solution obtained from the production plant is concentrated and filtered to remove solid impurity, and this is followed by further concentration to form crystals. These crystals are, are separated by centrifugal force and the crystals are dried to reduce moisture content 0.3%. The dried crystals are then packed in waterproof bags. Prilling, the dry crystals are melted down in a stream heater. The molten urea is sprayed downwards inside the tower to form pellets, and the hair is circulated to cool the prills. Aftermath, the prills are collected and bagged. Properties of urea is that the color is white, soluble in water, and it has hygroscopy, um, the hygroscopicity, which means absorption of moisture from the hair when relative humidity is about 72% and temperature is 30 degrees. Urea loses its moisture. So, urea is an acid fertilizer, and the chemical formula is CO into bracket NH2 close bracket subscript 2 um, so that is that on fertilizer then we will be moving to organic manure and waste and crop growth and response to soil nutrients stay with us
in this episode, we'll be looking at crop growth and responses to soil nutrients. And we know crop growth is an irreversible increase in the size of a crop, and it is a complex process where different organs such as leaves, roots, stems, many more, develop, grow, and die in overlapping sequences. The growth of an annual plant related to time is an S-shaped curve for one growing season of for a perennial plant. The difference between crop growth and plant development is that crop growth is an increase in size and it is expressed in terms of dry weight or dimensions such as height and diameter. Rather, plant development is a progress of plants from germination to maturity through series of stages which in many crops are often well defined. So what are the factors affecting crop growth? We have the genetic factor and the environmental factor. The genetic factor is the youth potential of a crop is determined merely by the genes of that crop. A large part of the increase in yield over the years has been due to hybrids and improved varieties. Other characteristics such as quality, disease resistance, drought hardiness are also determined by genetic makeups. The environmental factors, these are external conditions and influence that affect the life and development of a crop and they include temperature, moisture supply, radiant energy, composition of the atmosphere, the soil erosion and structure, soil reaction, biotic factor, supply of mineral nutrients, absence of growth restricting substances. Then. Crop growth is a function of various environmental or growth factor, and <clears throat> there's a guy <laughs> just was born, Lie Big. Ah, is the younger brother of Lie Mohammed. So Lie Big law of the minimum states that. Plant growth is proportional to the amount of available, most limiting plant nutrients, and the addition of each successive increment of a growth factor results in increase in growth, and the maximum yield obtained when all factors are supplying adequate or optimum amount. That is the lie, lie big dollars. He gave his law of diminishing in turn, which is like a counter to lie big law of the minimum, stating that plant growth response to a limiting element is not proportional, but rather follow a diminishing return. And it is mathematically expressed as dy dx equals k into bracket capital Y minus small y close bracket, where dy is the yield increase resulting from small addition of dx of the limiting factor then k is the constant for a particular crop capital y is the maximum possible yield while small y is the yield under actual conditions it means that each additional unit of fertilizer gives slightly smaller benefits than the previous unit so what is nutrient absorption Nutrient absorption is um, a root-soil interaction. The rate of nutrient absorption by a root depends on both nutrients applied to the root surface and the active absorption by the root cortical cells. The factors affecting this nutrient supply, firstly, the soil solution concentration, secondly, the buffering power of the soil, thirdly, the rate of movement to the root surface by diffusion or mass flow of soil water. As well as 5.3, you go mad. Mass flow and diffusion of soil water. So cute! So, the movement of a yawns from the soil to the root surface, there are three mechanisms the root interception, the mass flow, and diffusion. Root interception occurs as plant root grows through soil mass, encountering ions in soil solution and absorbs ion on the soil surface and absorbed ion on the soil surface. So root interception is more like orin or cori. Then mass flow occurs as nutrient ion are transported in flow of water 
to the root surface that results from transpirational water uptake by the plant. Mass flow prevails for nutrients that are presently in relatively high concentration such as calcium and magnesium and mobile nutrients such as NO3- and SO42-. The movement of nutrient by mass flow is reduced when there is a low temperature and low moisture content. Diffusion on the other hand, nutrient ion diffuse towards the roots when ion concentration at the root surface decreases. So from higher concentration to lower concentration, creating a nutrient concentration gradient. And diffusion functions to alleviate the nutrient depletion that has occurred in the zone next to the root. Alright, so let's move to the movement of ions into the root system. The movement of nutrients from root surface into the root. You know, the one we talked about is the movement of nutrients from the soil to the root surfaces. Now, from the roots, now the root surfaces into the root. It's either by passive movement transport or active movement transport. The passive means it occurs in the outer or free space in the wall of the epidermal and cortical cells of the root, and it is controlled by the ion concentration diffusion and electrical, the ion exchange gradient. Diffusion occurs with concentration gradients from high to low concentration, and it is a non-selective process as it does not require energy from metabolic activities of the plant. The active movement of transport of ions, it is the movement of an ion against its concentration gradient using energy. When cell uses energy to pump a solute across the membrane against the concentration gradient, that is an active movement or transport. So the process of nutrient entry, known as the ion carrier mechanism or carrier theory, involves a metabolically produced substance, known as carriers, that combines with the free ions. So these ion carrier complex can then cross membranes and other barriers that are not permeable to the free ions and later dissociate to release ions into the inner space of the cell. Like come um, this guy is holy, or the maha chicken um, uh, separate tobacco DNA. So the disguise has ion carrier complex, they enter, they can separate. So the active ion transport is a selective process such that specific ion are transported across the plasma lemma by specific carrier mechanisms. Thank you, that's that on crop growth and response. So let's go to organic manuals and waste. What are organic manuals? These are manuals. Uh, these manuals are plant and animal waste in different stages of decomposition that are used as sources of plant nutrients to improve the soil physical properties. And the sources of these are cattle shed waste dung, human habitation waste night soil. We have the poultry litter, we have the slaughterhouse waste, we have the byproduct of agro-industries, we have crop wastes, we have water hyacinth, and we have green manure crops. So organic man manures can be classified into bulky and concentrated organic manures. The bulky contains small percentages of nutrients but are applied in large quantities, like the farmyard manure. And that fixes about, it consists of uh, dung's urine of farm animals and on an average, a well decomposed farm manure should contain 0.5% nitrogen, 0.2% phosphate, and 0.5% potassium oxide. Then, poultry manure as well, it ferments very quickly if left to expose, if left exposed. 50% of its N is lost within 30 days. It contains higher N and P compared to other bulky manures. So, example of bulky manures on steel, we have compost, and this is made by accelerating the rate of humification of plant and animal residue by microorganisms in a well-aerated condition. And we also have green manure, and this can be practiced by plowing quick-growing leaf before maturity into the soil. 
the crop residue, no, no, is an example of bulky manure, which includes plant parts, straws, tovers, roots that remains on the land after crop harvest. And we also have slurry, as this is a suspension of dung in urine and washing water coming from animal house and milking parlors. It is an end product of wastewater treatment consisting of solids separating from liquid raw sewage. The advantages of this bulky manure is that it supplies nutrients, including micronutrients. They improve soil physical properties like structure, water holding capacity, porosity, water stable aggregate, infiltration rate, and hydraulic conductivity. They buffer against rapid changes in acidity, alkalinity, and salinity of the soil. They increase, they increase the availability of nutrients. The build soil organic matter uh, carbon dioxide is released during composition and act as CO2 fertilizer. The plant's parasitic nematode and fungi are controlled to some extent by altering the balance of microorganisms in the soil. Now let's move to concentrated organic manures. And this one have higher nutrient than bulky manures and they are known as organic nitrogen fertilizers. Example of these are the oil cake, the blood meal, the fish meal. The oil cake are of two types, while the um, yeah the oil cake are of two types. The edible oil cake, which can be safely fed to livestock, and the non-edible uh, oil cakes, which are not for feeding livestock, like the castor cake, the lean cake, the mahua cake. And all of these have their own proportional nutrients, so you can look that up in your notes. And the factors determining the content of manures, difference in source, the animal species, the population, the feed ration and conversion rate, bedding material type, climatic condition, age of plant material, application of method and timing, collection and storage system. The properties of this manure is that it immediately supplies nutrients like manure contains nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium that can be used directly by plants and delayed supply of nutrients too because it is slowly decomposing which makes um, nutrients in the manure and organic matter available to plants. Then lowered pH. Regular manure application lowers the soil pH. The acidifying effect of this manure is less than that of inorganic fertilizers. We also have salt and ammonia toxicity. We have improved soil structure, enhanced biological activity. So the sewage sludge. The sewage sludge is a byproduct of the wastewater treatment process that can be used on the farm. And the sludge refers to the residual semi-solid materials left from industrial wastewater or sewage processes sewage treatment processes. So treated sewage sludge is also known as biosolids. It is readily available alternative soil building material. It contains nutrients and valuable trace elements essential to animals and plants. It is a more efficient and sustainable activity to inorganic fertilizers and mineral fertilizers such as phosphate. It provides a source of slow releasing nitrogen ideal for land restoration and sewage sludge can contain heavy metals like copper, lead, candium and zinc which is harmful to humans and animals unless it is applied uh, it sends like correctly. Then untreated or we have two types of sewage the untreated and the treated one. The untreated cannot be applied to crops whether they are food crop or not. And the treated sewage, which is the biosolid, have two types, the conventional and the enhanced. The conventional has at least 99% of pathogens that are present has been destroyed. And the enhanced treatment, also known as the advanced treatment, virtually eliminates all pathogens and may be that which may have been present in the original sludge. So just read well on sewage sludge and know what organic manure is then we are good to go so this brings us to the end 
of the instruction for the war of SOS 511. Um, well, and as the soldiers make their way home, chanting victory, 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 see you next time.